From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. From the impeachment hearings to NATO, we speak to journalist John Jeter and activist Ajamu Baraka about the priorities and actions of elites that are destroying lives around the globe. I talk to regular people, my family, my friends. The impeachment hearings never come up. I don't think that the typical person in Flint, Michigan, where people complain that the water is still poisoned, really cares much about this impeachment hearings. Why doesn't Congress care about the water in Flint, Michigan? And as the UN World Climate Change Conference gets underway in Madrid, voices of veterans who launched the environmental justice movement in the United States. We redefined environmentalism and conservationism as where we work, where we live, where we play, where we pray, and where we go to school or where we learn. Then we took it a step further and we talked about environmental racism. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And lots of news from the Trump administration moving forward to cut food aid to the poor or threatening black communities with loss of police protection. But you may not have heard about these stories because, as you guessed it, the ongoing impeachment hearings. On Thursday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi asked House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler to prepare articles of impeachment for the 45th president. The House Intelligence Committee report released this week says that Trump used the release of military aid to Ukraine to pressure that country's leader, President Zelensky, to publicly announce he was investigating Trump's potential 2020 election rival, former President Joe Biden. Well, joining me to discuss the headlines this week is journalist John Jeter, author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He was the Washington Post Bureau Chief for Southern Africa from 1999 to 2003 and the Post Bureau Chief for South America from 2003 to 2004. He joins us from Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Esther. Well, let's start with impeachment. I want to get your take on the impeachment hearings and the process so far. I have kept up with it only tangentially, but I worry that this is going to blow up in the face of the Democrats. They don't seem to be generating much enthusiasm for this impeachment much like the Republicans uh, failed to do in Bill Clinton's impeachment. The difference, however, is that the economy then actually was booming. Now uh, the economy is circling the drain. I think people are going to be frustrated that the Democratic Party doesn't seem able or willing to respond to their most pressing problems. Right. So the call for the articles to be drawn up happens right after these legal scholars told the Judiciary Committee this week that Trump's behavior met the standard of impeachment. So Stanford Law Professor Pamela Carlin said, quote, a candidate for president should resist foreign interference in our elections, not demand it. And it occurs to me that this type of witness and this line of questioning and report ignores Trump's effort to investigate Ukraine's documented involvement in the 2016 election. 
I keep hearing report after news report, including on Pacifica Radio, calling the Ukraine involvement in the election a conspiracy theory, despite the fact that it was reported in outlets like Politico, Financial Times. And so I wonder where this kind of parallel world is leading us. It's that disconnect that just seems to be growing between what the people want and need and what Washington wants and needs. You know, the, the, the famous Malay speech that Jimmy Carter gave 40 years ago about that growing divide. This seems to be sort of symptomatic of it and at the same time actually widening it. You know, the Stanford law professor and the other law professors, legal scholars who spoke, uh, although I think John, John Petrelli had this sort of dissident view, I think that even speaks to it more, these sort of elitist uh, these professors speaking for elitist institutions. And I do, you know, fear for the American democracy in the face of this impeachment hearing, which doesn't seem to be getting much traction among regular people. And I, I think the other way that I fear for the democracy, if we want to use those terms, is the fact that journalists, like I mentioned, I think, for example, Kenneth Vogel, formerly of political, and I think at the New York Times now still, and who reported on Kiev's role in the 2016 election, they're being smeared by other corporate journalists as if their reporting isn't factual, as if what they uncovered isn't true. And so I'm wondering how, you know, as a journalist looking at this, you know, who's worked at, you know, corporate media, how are you looking at the media landscape in reference to this impeachment? Well, I don't think there's any functioning media in the United States anymore, not any functioning mainstream media in, in any event. And this is symptomatic of that failure of the American media to actually report about the events that are shaping our discontent. Uh, Ukraine's involvement, the Obama administration's overthrow of a democratically elected Ukrainian government led by uh, the State Department and Hillary Clinton's top deputy at the time, Victoria Nuland, which we have on tape you know, her orchestrating who she wanted to lead this this coup. And these kinds of things don't seem to be newsworthy in the American media anymore. And these are things that can help deepen our understanding of what we're going through right now. And there's very little mention, of, you know, with the exception of programs like yours, there's very little mention of these things that might actually help sort of re-educate the American public. No, it just occurred to me when those Ukraine documents that helped bring down Paul Manafort when they were useful, it was in the news. <laughs> but now that we're in the impeachment phase, those things aren't being brought to light. But, you know, in the coming week, the Justice Department is going to bring out their report in terms of their investigation. And so we'll we'll get a whole different narrative then. And unfortunately, like you said, a lot of this is going to come to a head just as Democratic candidates want to be campaigning in Iowa. And instead, there's going to be a Senate hearing and candidates like Bernie Sanders will have to come back to, to D.C. to deal with that. We've been talking about how Orwellian things are here in the, the nation's capital. And I have to use that as a segue to talk about issues dealing with the police and public safety. William Barr made a statement this week that communities that do not quote unquote respect police could lose protections. George Zimmerman is suing Trayvon Martin's parents for $100 million. And we have our own tragic case here in Washington, D.C. 
of Jamal Byrd, who died in police custody in September and was only recently announced by uh, the D.C. police, D.C. corrections. And his mother, and we're going to play some of that sound later in the show, she said at the press conference that no one's even bothered to contact her about what happened to her son. So I mentioned that because uh, you wrote a piece this week about the assassination of Fred Hampton. And I wanted you to tie those things together, the police, the FBI, and coordinating in his assassination and what, what's happening today. The 50th anniversary of Fred Hampton's murder, I think, uh, it will be hard to identify one date, but I think that uh, Fred Hampton's murder is when we officially start to see what I would call a counter-revolution in this country, in the United States, by the reactionaries, by the establishment against the New Deal coalition. And what I mean by that is that you saw the media, you saw uh, Richard Nixon with his Southern strategy, the FBI with COINTELPRO, you saw them sort of put their stake in the ground and say, it almost one writer described it as a moral panic that Fred Hampton's death, because he was so charismatic, because he was 21, because he was really almost unequivocally virtuous, right, that they put their stake in the ground and said, okay, no more, we're not going to allow this coalition to continue and to threaten a white privilege, patriarchal privilege, uh, and the oligarchs' privileges. Uh, and so what we've seen is in 50 years, the 50-year evolution of this movement, which has produced, uh, as Fred Hampton would say, answers that don't answer, explanations that don't explain, and conclusions that don't conclude. And so take George Zimmerman's case as one example. Many legal experts believe that the prosecution intentionally, deliberately threw that case. Now, we don't see that in the media, but it is there. You, you can, it's not hard to find legal scholars who believe that case was intentionally thrown by the prosecutors who did not want to win that case. So that is sort of this, this toxic pill, right? And it's poisoned the entire American body politic. Uh, the killing of Fred Hampton has really poisoned the entire American body politic. And what we're left with today is this sort of sick and dying democratic polity. And we see it in all of our institutions, which are failing at this point. And we see it in this shrinking public space for working people, for women, and for people of color especially. Speaking of that shrinking space, the Trump administration moved closer to slashing food benefits to hundreds of thousands of people this week. And I just saw actually that Betsy DeVos is quietly making moves to try and derail the possibility that any future president could forgive student loans. So this is continuing the same theme. But in the the little time we have left, I want to switch to the 2020 election. This week, Kamala Harris announced her departure from the presidential race and There were several pieces commenting on the continued Bernie blackout in terms of the news organizations ignoring the candidacy of and campaign, very robust campaign of Bernie Sanders. I wanted to hear your thoughts on either of those issues. Yeah, well, I think it's the same thing going on in both cases, which is the Democratic Party is struggling to respond to two masters. One is Wall Street and the other is the Democratic voters. And they're having a hard time doing that. Bernie Sanders represents the people in a lot of ways. I think the popularity of his candidacy, his popularity, his appeal, 
underscores just how far the Democratic Party has drifted away from what the people, from what its constituents want and need. And party, uh, which includes, I think, the media, uh, is trying to marginalize him. Uh, I don't think they'll be able, they're going to be able to do it. And I think that's going to be very dangerous both for the party and for our democracy. Because I do think he has this sort of Jesse Jackson-like appeal, if you remember Jesse Jackson's campaigns in the 80s. And I think he even can re-energize the Democratic Party. Kamala Harris, I think, as a black man, as a, as a black Democrat, I guess I've been all my life, all my adult life, uh, I claim to deal with the bad. And blacks, I think, were hoodwinked and bamboozled by Obama, a black man who looks black, but uh, his policies are really no different from George Bush, be it in foreign policy and education. And, you know, blacks cheer Barack Obama on uh, because he was a black man, because it is a historic moment. But he didn't deliver anything. In fact, blacks did much worse under Obama uh, than we have, by some measures, since Reconstruction, since the end of Reconstruction. So I think Kamala Harris is suffering from what happened under Obama. Uh, blacks won't be fooled twice. Uh, they're not going to go from dokey dokey again. I think you're going to see, this is true for all of the Democratic, uh, the black Democrats who are running for the White House right now. I doubt that Duval Patrick and Cory Booker combined will uh, attract 5% of the vote. I, just, I don't see it. They're speaking the same neoliberal policies that Obama promoted, and I don't think black people are going to go for that again. We've been tricked once, we won't be tricked a second time. I guess we can leave it on that note. I have to say that uh, President Obama has been out on the stump in a sense, you know, wagging his finger as he often did to let voters know that we can't expect too much and that, you know, the party can't go too far to the left. (laughs) Not out on the stump, I should say, you know, at the recent big gathering here for like very rich, rich Democratic supporters. And He's even been uh, quoted as saying that if Bernie Sanders starts to do too well, he'll he'll try to stop him. So so this is um, this is very disturbing. And another point that you mentioned in terms of the uh, failed failing and failed democracy. It's It's extraordinary, really, particularly when you think about it in the context of Fred Hampton's death 50 years ago just two days ago, I guess, or just a day ago. And the, 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 the trajectory since then, right, where we have this sort of shrieking democracy that was sort of predicated by the assassination of this charismatic man who talked about what? Black power to black people, white power to white people, brown power to, to brown people, power to the people. And now we've got just the opposite occurring in Washington where they're trying to take power from the people or to keep power in their hands and make sure that people never get their hands on this democratic power. Wow. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking with journalist John Jeter. Thank you for joining the show, John. Thank you, Esther. Beat down for the brown. Me and to the man, each one saw a team.
to tell our sisters and every brother one love who said it. I know who Jeannie sang it. The hater taught hate, that's why we can't bang it. Beware of the hand when it's coming from the left. I ain't clipping, just watch the step. Can't trust it. Jamal Bird, a 33-year-old father, son, and brother, was arrested on September 30th in D.C. for allegedly selling marijuana at a restaurant. And seven hours later, after being jailed at D.C. police headquarters, police say he was found unconscious in a cell, transported to a hospital, and pronounced dead at 1.15 a.m. the next day. Almost two months later, his mother, Roxanne Bird, said that she had not been informed how her son died and that police told more to news organizations than to her. She and activist April Goggins spoke at a press conference on November 26th outside police headquarters in Northwest D.C. November the 27th, 2019, I still don't know what happened to my son. Any information from the officials here at the D.C. Department of Corrections would be great, but I have heard nothing. This took place close to two months ago. <laughs> this Thursday, some of these same officials who will have an opportunity to share time with their family, while me and my family will be missing one of our beloved members, my son, his daughter, his sister, my nephew, he was a, he was a well-loved child. He was a human being, and his life mattered. I want to know what happened to my son, and I'm not going to go away. And I thank God for placing me in, uh, uh, with people like April and Black Lives Matter and NeNe. All of you guys, I thank you so much for supporting me and my family in this, this difficult time, this most difficult time. But we are not going away. Because the, the truth of the matter is that being black is not a crime. It's not a crime. We're made in God's image just like everyone else. And we deserve to be treated with respect. And that's what did not happen in this case. And the reason I know it didn't happen because I still don't know what happened to my son. What happened to Jamal? What happened to Jamal Bird? 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 So for those of you who are watching and wondering what we're here for, Jamal Bird, who was 33 years old, lost his life here in this building in D.C. Central Cell Block on September 30th, 2019. We have not heard anything about what happened to Jamal. MPD, Department of Corrections are talking more to the Washington Post than they are to the family. Why are we here at 300 Indiana Avenue? Because Central Cell Block is below this building. Central Cell Block is a jail. It is not a nice place where people wait to be arraigned. 
It is not your average government building. It is a cage. It's a cage. And so we also ask you to uplift this family. Remember that when the cameras go away, when the videos go away, when the tweets go away, there is an entire group of people who are forever changed. Forever changed by this. And someone has to be held accountable. Jamal Bird died in this building on September 30th, 2019. Less than seven hours from the time he was arrested and placed in Central Cell Block. Less than seven hours after being arrested by jump out squads. Wow. Chief Newsom has been testifying for three years that jump out squads do not exist. Charles Allen, where you at? Shame. It was the detective who called and called it a jump out. And they can hush hush it and they can get on the news all they want today after today and talk about talk about Jamal. We know the truth. Yes, he was a person with the mother, with children, with siblings, with friends. People come finding him, finding his paper on, um, on finding his flyer on Facebook who remember him. And not only do they remember him, they each have a story. They each have a story of something he did or the kind of person that he was. No one just said, hey, oh yeah, I've seen him. Yeah. No, he was my friend. We did this. Last time I saw him, he gave somebody this. He made sure I had things to read. And even if he didn't and we didn't know anything about him, he deserves the respect, dignity, and justice that it, that we all deserve. I, I just want to, um, I just want to, from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of me and my family, I just want to thank all of you all who just met me this morning, don't know me from a can of paint. I really appreciate just your humanness standing here with me and my family. And like um, Sister April said, we're not going away. We're not going away. And anybody who knows me for a length of time knows that I'm very passionate about stuff. And one thing that I'm very passionate about is that my culture I am of African descent, that my culture deserves to be treated way better than we've been treated for over 400 years. But let's just talk about present. My son, the only son that God allowed me to have, was taken by state-sponsored <laughs> terrorism. It's just no other. My son was taken by state-sponsored terrorism that's headquartered right here. Now today is my son we're talking about, but let's be really clear. Tomorrow it could be your son, and then your son, and then her son, and then his son, because it don't stop. That's what state-sponsored terrorism is about. It's about trying to annihilate people. But I ain't going nowhere. And the DNA that's in me says that I ain't going nowhere. You can crush me to the ground, but I'm coming back up. And as long as I got a voice, I'm going to be asking you, what happened to my son? What happened?
to Jamal Quasi Bird. What happened? Because you ain't told me nothing yet. And I'm not going to stop asking until you start giving me some answers. Thank you again, April, for putting this together. Thank you so much, Nene. Thank you, Kiana Johnson back there. We met a while back. Thank y'all, all of y'all. Thank you, Brother, Reverend Andre, for being here. Thank you. Just thank you from the bottom of my heart. It just matters. This makes, this makes a difference because they got to listen to us sooner or later. <laughs> sooner or later, it's coming to your house, and we're going to be right at your front door until we get the answer. That's it, and that's all. The rally was organized by Black Lives Matter D.C., which differed with the account of the arrest of Jamal Byrd. Activists say that Byrd was the target of a stop and frisk by D.C. police while he was en route to a job training program. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, held celebrations for its 70th anniversary in London this week. There was internal squabbling among the imperialist nations of Europe and the United States, with Donald Trump leaving in a huff on Wednesday after video surfaced of other leaders mocking him at a cocktail party. Well... Joining me to discuss NATO and other international issues is Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. Welcome back to the show, Ajamu. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Well, I just want to get first your take on this gathering of NATO in London. Earlier this year, you were among the organizers of a rally here and a major protest against NATO. Well, you know, we, the, the Black Alliance for Peace, we issued a statement that said that uh, this gathering in London should be seen as a, a threat to, to collective humanity. We view NATO as a white supremacist structure whose mission it is to maintain and to advance the imperialist interests of the West. And we, we have uh, evidence of this over the last few decades that indicate that clearly that that is, in fact, its mission and a mission it has been carrying out uh, quite effectively. So we see this as a structure that uh, warrants uh, opposition, uh, political and moral. Uh, we see this gathering in London as a, a gathering of a cabal of white supremacist militarists, uh, and we are calling attention to that and characterizing that gathering uh, in those terms. So probably most people who have been watching what NATO does can see that their their actions extend far beyond the North Atlantic area, their role in Libya, the destruction of Libya. And I was really struck by at the at this conference or this meeting, they were discussing China, which is clearly on the other side of the world. And... I think there was some difference about whether all the members could continue their traditional hostility toward Russia. Well, you know, uh, uh, Esther, with the dismantling of the Soviet Union uh, in the early 1990s, 
Um, NATO has been searching for a, a mission, mission ever since. Uh, of course, originally it was supposed to be uh, set up to prevent uh, aggression from the Soviet Union, aggression that everybody knew was not going to happen in terms of some kind of land invasion of Europe. And NATO was set up before the so-called Warsaw Pact uh, that was set up by the Soviet Union. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the question became then, what is the role for NATO? One would assume that NATO would have dismantled, but of course it didn't. Uh, because of what I uh, commented on a few minutes ago, uh, it was reformulated, reconfigured, if you will, uh, to become a traveling instrument of white supremacy, a traveling instrument of Western imperialism. That's why it can be called upon to be part of the, the mobilization against China, as you indicated in your question, that basically this is a structure that's quite clear that they see that uh, the use of force is a legitimate uh, instrument that they, uh, they are preparing to use in order to maintain their global hegemony. Uh, and so they have identified the Chinese and uh, along with Russia as uh, potential enemies and that they want to mobilize their resources and public opinion uh, to, in fact, uh, at some point even engage the Chinese in a military confrontation. This is why we say that this this structure is a threat to, to global humanity. It is a imperialist, warmongering structure that should be uh, dismantled if people are really concerned about trying to demilitarize uh, the world uh, and to prevent uh, uh, the possibility of some kind of global conflict with nuclear weapons. And speaking of weapons, one of the more disturbing developments at the conference was NATO's discussion of expanding into space and connecting with all these efforts by the United States and other countries to weaponize space. Exactly. It's, it's an aggressive structure. Uh, it wants, the U.S. wants to, to weaponize space. But, you know, Esther, also, you know, because of its expanding nature, even beyond the issue of, of expanding into space and militarizing space, we look at, uh, from the Black Lives for Peace, we look at things even more concrete in terms of the expansion of NATO into Africa. You know, we have been advocating and uh, agitating against uh, the U.S.-Africa Command, which is a U.S. command structure. But the, the U.S.-Africa Command, or AFRICOM, uh, and NATO are integrated structures, and they have both been expanding on the African continent. They are strategically integrated. And so we are calling attention to, again, this expansion as another example of the kind of aggressive uh, imperialist project that this structure is involved in. So you have the expansion in Africa, you have the expansion into space. Again, it should be quite obvious to anyone who's following this, even on a cursory level, that this structure is a structure that should be opposed by collective humanity. Now, speaking of Russia uh, and China, there were really big monumental announcements this week of Russia and China collaborating on a, a massive gas pipeline that will uh, funnel uh, natural gas from Russia into China. And curiously enough, the New York Times described it as a, a challenge to the power of the United States. I'm not really sure unless that they're just admitting that the U.S. wants to have, you know, worldwide hegemony. I'm not really sure why Russia and China's gas is, has anything to do with the U.S., but I didn't know if you had any comments on that or developments in Hong Kong. 
Well, yeah, that's another example of the thinking, the hegemonic thinking among elements in the West, that any economic connections, any economic developments, uh, trade developments between uh, various nations outside of the purview, the control uh, of the U.S. and the West is perceived as a threat. And because it's perceived as a threat, the only response that they believe they may have to engage in is, in fact, a military uh, response. So, yeah, as you said, this should have nothing to do with the U.S. or other Western powers. But uh, the U.S. is, in fact, committed to, to global dominance. It's doctrine of full-spectrum dominance is a doctrine supported by both U.S. political parties uh, and has become and is the strategic uh, framework for maintaining uh, U.S. global hegemony. And so any attempts by uh, various states or regional powers to operate outside of the domain of the U.S., is perceived uh, as a threat. So this is, is not something that's uh, surprising, um, uh, but what it's doing is it is also intensifying the struggles or the contradictions within the Western alliance itself. We saw that unfolding also uh, in London with the various states, in particular France, that wants to, uh, instead of confront Russia, wants to bring Russia back into the European fold. But you have the U.S., that is pursuing its American first uh, doctrine, which is uh, America uh, continue global hegemony. So there, there are so many layers and complexities to all of these issues that we have to watch very closely. But because of their complexities, too, the possibility of military engagements and confrontations is at an all time high. Well, finally, I know you're joining me from Colombia, and I want to give our listeners an update on what's happening in Colombia, but also in Bolivia and the really intense struggle going on around these same dynamics you just described in terms of the U.S. ramping up its traditional uh, interference in Latin America and in the sovereignty of countries there. Exactly. And most of your listeners know there was a coup in Bolivia the people are attempting to try to fight back and maintain the integrity of their of their project in that country against a right-wing element fully supported by the U.S. Uh, that wants to impose a, a neo-fascist uh, regime on that country. It's important, though, that for us to understand that we have to put Bolivia within this broader context of the Americas and even broader context of what we spoke about a moment ago in terms of uh, full-spectrum dominance. Any states in the in any region that's attempting to try to lessen its ties and dependency on the U.S. is seen as a threat. And, and that's why the U.S. targeted Venezuela. That's why it connected Venezuela with Bolivia uh, and Ecuador and Chile. And it is attempting to try to reverse the tide of progressive development in, in the Americas by reimposing uh, right-wing anti-democratic uh, governments on the people of our America. So, you know, we've got to look at Bolivia within that context. We put also in that context the struggles taking place in Haiti that no one talks about. These are all struggles on the part of people to try to free themselves from foreign domination, free themselves from the impact of U.S.-imposed neoliberalism. But the U.S. is fighting back aggressively and making progress primarily because in the U.S., 
there is very little opposition to U.S. policies. The Democratic Party is in full support of the Trump administration's moves on Venezuela, on Bolivia, Solid, on uh, Haiti, uh, and that's saying much about the uprising developing uh, in Colombia. So we've got to ratchet up awareness of these situations and demand that so-called progressives demand that their representatives uh, no longer remain silent on U.S. aggressive imperialist policies. Either you stand with the people of, of the planet or you stand with uh, U.S. aggressive uh, imperialism. And there's no middle way and there's no silence at, at this historical moment. Okay. Well, I think we'll, we'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking with Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. Thank you for joining me today, Ajamu. My pleasure. Thank you. Plymouth Rock, did you have your papers? When you was dying from sickness caught, did you ask for favors? When all you could grow was stricken crops, did you ask your neighbors? Did they teach you how to survive? Make sure you had the basics, but not glad the gracious what you had was sacred. Wanted they land to take it, cause you planned to rape it. Thankless, would you call a man a racist who would give women and children smallpox and blankets to make it like someone else is illegal with a nation of 40 million on October 24, 1991, the first People of Color Summit was convened, where environmental justice principles were developed. Recently, three of those environmental justice leaders who were present at that meeting 28 years ago, Richard Moore, Beverly Wright, and Peggy Shepard, helped to lead a series of meetings on Capitol Hill to introduce the newly created Equitable and Just Climate Platform designed to draw together the work of environmental justice activists and national environmental organizations. Peggy Shepard, Executive Director of We Act for Environmental Justice in Harlem. You know, it was 28 years ago that some of us came together, 400 folks from around the country, to develop the 17 principles of environmental justice. And at that time, there, we had a green group panel where we were trying to address these issues with them and try to get them to understand that it was important for us to work together. Well, it's taken 28 years, and we are here to say that we are working together. We have found common ground with certainly uh, the more progressive environmental groups in this country. And after a year of working on the platform, we're now beginning to, to work on implementing and developing the policies that will really initiate this platform. There's a lot of questions that I have heard from folks about this, is why is equity a part of, of climate? There are many more conservationists who don't understand why you would connect equity with climate and feel that, that it should not be happening that way. But we understand that if we're going to mobilize the kind of support that we need to pass comprehensive climate legislation, 
that we need everyone. Because if we're really looking at this in a comprehensive way, it is going to be transformative. And transformative means that it will affect each and all of us in society in a variety of ways. And so we know that if we're going to develop the kind of energy economy we need, we have got to ensure that we are addressing the issues that all communities have. And so that is one reason why my organization, and I think many other environmental justice organizations are supporting, and over 220 uh, signatories have signed on to the platform. Beverly Wright, Executive Director, Deep South Center for Environmental Justice in Louisiana. Over the years, we have watched our fight move from such things as fighting landfills only. Uh, that's how we started, to looking at every aspect of life as it relates to pollution impacting the quality of life for, for our communities. And as we move further and further into this new era of climate change, the connections between the suffering of our communities and this dependency on fossil fuels and the increasing greenhouse gases have become front and center in our communities because we are the first hit and the last, the last to be serviced, to be helped. And so now, since the onset of all of these severe weather events, we now include in our concerns disaster recovery, right to return, all of these terms that you're hearing, that's newer to our portfolio because of climate change. Uh, and I suspect that the portfolio will get larger as we begin to move forward and see more things that are happening, you know, to our communities because of the onset of and impacts of climate change that will expand. For me, because I work in three areas, three areas of work, you know, like on the ground with communities, there's an unbelievable need to educate, to mobilize, to advocate for people where they are. There is absolutely a need to improve civic participation among our members, among our communities, I mean, so that they can have a voice in decisions that are being made about their survival with climate change but also protection from pollution. And then there's absolutely a need to be more inclusive of young people. Millennials, for me, the avenue is, is through HBCUs because that's where I work. It will take all of us to change this world, to change the direction that we've seen our world going in to become one that's more inclusive and protective of everyone. Jumana Vasi, Midwest Environmental Justice Network. I worked in a few environmental justice communities outside of Chicago, but when I moved to philanthropy and worked on mainstream water issues for the Great Lakes, it was as if nobody understood that EJ existed in the region. And from the funder side, it was completely invisible, and I spent eight or so years from that up front. And, and partly it's because the media was not reflecting those issues and right, making it real for people. And it's very hard 
for individuals with no power to um, convince people with power that these issues exist if they're absent from written records, research, and the media. So thank you for coming. Thank you for your interest. And so the foundation where I worked was based in Flint, Michigan. And this is just a story to show what invisibility does when people have resources and power and they just don't understand or are aware. But so these same folks that, didn't, that I worked for that were unaware of environmental justice, when the Flint crisis happened, I was, my responsibility was Great Lakes water. I worked on freshwater protection. That meant protecting water in its place, right? In its river, in its aquifer. And I was specifically told, we don't care. This is not our job. Not that we don't care. It's not our job to figure out how that water gets to people through their drinking water taps. It's a very siloed approach of looking at water. And so when the crisis actually happened, that invisibility, the people that didn't understand environmental justice couldn't see the signs, weren't listening to the people, those relationships weren't there, and it exacerbated what we know has happened and is still going on in Flint. So that's why, on behalf of the Midwest Environmental Justice Network, I'm so pleased that there's a water component to the climate crisis because water is how climate is primarily impacting our groups in the Midwest. When we do an analysis of our membership, water rises to the top as the most important issue area, and it's connected with energy resource extraction, transport, and, and, and use, as well as energy security and affordability. Former South Carolina State Representative Harold Mitchell, Executive Director of Regenesis Project. Thank you, too, for being able to be here and help us launch what I think is going to be a tremendous fight from South Carolina um, growing up in, in and around impacted uh, facilities, uh, knowing the fight that you communities, as was stated by my colleagues, uh, this document, having this equitable and just platform, is going to be something that I think as a launch uh, fighting the issue of climate change, uh, when you look at this collective effort, it's what I really want to speak on, coming from wearing the hat of uh, community activists and being in the state legislature. Uh, when you look at this collective front of having the two groups that actually went together on the Hill yesterday, uh, speaking to congressional representatives and looking at what this platform has been able to galvanize and pull the groups together to begin this fight. You know, we've already been able to have the state legislators and the Conference of Black Mayors, uh, local elected black officials. Uh, people have been scattered in different silos as to how do you address environmental justice, how do you address the climate, but this is a collective document that we now have something to pull everyone together to fight this tremendous fight. So this is what I'm happy to be a part of, and especially looking at part of what's, you know, the cumulative risk impacts when you look at those vulnerable communities across the country, whether it's coastal, inland landfills, you name it. Having this collective group to collect the, the you know, the ideas and the points that so many people have been fighting for so long, you know, that's the gist of it. We have a document, and we have a collective uh, group, whether it's state, local, federal, and communities, that's going to use this in this fight for climate change. Richard Moore, 
of the Los Jardines Institute, the Gardens Institute in New Mexico. I sit here both in proudness and in, to some respect, sadness. And I'll say this very quickly to keep it short, what I, what I mean by that. First of all, the history of our communities and the incredible, absolutely incredible struggle that our communities have been going through for the last many, many, many years. In some respects, when we convened, actually, the years and years of work, of grassroots work that's been, our communities have been engaged in, whether it's been African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, Asian Pacific Islanders, whoever that may be, the incredible injustices that our communities have been impacted by. When we came together here in Washington, D.C., in 1991 for the First People of Color Summit, then it's very important for you all to understand where we come from as it's important it is for us to understand where you come from. When we convened that meeting, hundreds of us, people of color and native indigenous people here in Washington, D.C. in 1991, and one of the primary significant pieces that went along with that was redefining what environmentalism and conservationism is. Now, I'm not going to go through the long history of whatever, but I think it's important for us to understand the significance, not only the historical significance, but what this platform and this, these dialogues and the signing of this document means to us at the end of the day. So, we redefined environmentalism and conservationism as where we work, where we live, where we play, where we pray, and where we go to school, or where we learn. So that opened up then the box of both environmentalism and conservationism, and some would have said to us, keeping it very shortly, that you opened the box too wide. And not only then, based upon that, did we open the box wide because that's the wideness of the impacts on our communities on a day-to-day -day basis. Then we took it a step further and we talked about environmental racism. And we don't use the race card very lightly. But then we took it a step further and talked about the intentional targeting of our communities in the majority for whatever and anything that anybody else didn't want in their communities. That's related again to what this platform is about and what that means to us. And as my sister said, we developed the principles of environmental justice, we made some very important decisions, and we went back home to continue to implement and to do the work that's necessary to bring incredible solutions to the challenges that our communities have been impacted by. 29 years ago, we sent a letter to the environmental organizations and conservation groups asking for a dialogue. I'm talking about 29 years ago. So I want to leave it there, but I wanted to help you understand something. This ain't just a momentary exercise for us. This is about the life and the death and the blood, sweat, and tears of our sisters and brothers that have been impacted by these injustices for many, many years. So yes, we called it environmental racism, and yes, we call it now environmental genocide. So I want us to be very, very clear about that, and my last comment is that the other crucial thing that came out of that convening here 
as we cried together and we sang together and we celebrated together and we laughed together and we told stories together and our elders shared information and history with us about climate change, global warming, whatever it may be. We might have called it the change of weathering patterns, whatever, if we didn't use all the right language or if we don't read it today. But what I will tell you is that we're very clear about what the impacts of climate change and global warming is in our communities. We're very clear about that in rural communities and in urban communities. So I just want to leave it there and just say to you that I hope from the deepness of my heart that you all understand that this is not just a momentary thing for us. And yes, it's taken us 29 years to get here, but the significance behind what this platform speaks to, who helped to develop the platform, what those issues are in, these plat in this platform, that means many, many issues to not only us as community members, but as workers, many of those workers that work inside those facilities. So thank you very much. Michelle Roberts, National Co-Coordinator of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance, Washington, D.C. We are proud to be able to support this process that speaks to safe and healthy communities for all, that actually prioritizes that no community, no community is left behind. Unfortunately, in all of the policies and processes that have taken us to this point, there were many left behind, as you heard my colleagues here said. But today we are proud to say that we really in invoked our moral courage to really go into the deep and address the specific challenges that have created sometimes divisions and sometimes, what do you say, misunderstandings or unawares, right? But it gave us the ability to come together and intentionally live out the mandate of what we call for the love of the people. If we are about the love of the people, then we are able to lay down our differences, go through them together and address the challenges, but keep the people ever before us. Because at the end of the day, as Dr. Wright said, it's about the beloved community. Where I come into this as an organizer, scientist, and yes, radio producer, is the fact that I was born and raised in a city that was considered the chemical capital of the world, Wilmington, Delaware. I came through the Wilmington public school system where they thought all the children in the Wilmington public school system were dumb. They say there are no blacks in science, then there's me. And I say that with all love and affection because of the fact that we do hold the solutions. We do understand what's going on in our communities. We do know how to participate in the democratic process. We do know how to be able to write policies. We do know how to be able to sample the air and the soil and the waters and see what those challenges are. We have been sharing those challenges for many, many years. And so with that said, it gives us joy to be able to participate in this process because of the fact that this document shows the face of everyone. So I will leave it here with the fact that we stand true to this body of work and to this relationship because of the fact that we have arrived to a point 
that we will leave no one behind. Not one. And we now have the opportunity to really get it right in our society. If we're going to look at the climate crisis, let's really look at the climate crisis. And I'm not talking about winds and storms. Yes, we are about hurricanes and all of these things. But we have a crisis in our society. And if we can better our humanity, and that's what we believe is happening through this document, we will win for all. Not just for the communities here, but globally. Thank you. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And thank you to our supporters on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Public Enemy Can't Trust It, EST Dodge the Doo and Jaziri X, Who's Illegal, Part 1. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. We have launched a petition campaign at change.org to urge the D.C. Council to hold a public hearing about the actions of the Metropolitan Police Department during this year's illegal siege and takeover of the Venezuela Embassy. We are asking all of our listeners, especially those here in D.C., to go to change.org and search for and sign the petition titled Hold Public Hearings on MPD Actions at the Venezuela Embassy. That's change.org and search for and sign the petition titled Hold Public Hearings on MPD Actions at the Venezuela Embassy. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.